0: Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. The audacious murder of the brother of North Korea's Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un in a crowded Malaysian airport sparked a worldwide media frenzy. At the center of the investigation are two young women who either were cold-blooded killers or unwitting pawns in a political assassination. Assassins goes beyond the headlines to question every angle of this case, from human trafficking to geopolitical espionage to the secret dynamics of the North Korean dynasty. And boy, does it ever. This film is remarkable. The story is remarkable. And the access to the subjects of this incredible story are also remarkable. And fortunately we're joined today by someone who can explain all of these things to us. And that would be the director of Assassins, Ryan White. Ryan, welcome back to Film School Radio.
1: Thank you for having me again.
0: Well, again, I think that's the thing that jumps out at me as much as the story, which is incredible, is your access and how thoroughly you tell this story. How did you, first of all, what was, what went into the decision on your part to even embark on this project?
1: Yeah. So I think like most Americans, I would guess this, this assassination kind of rings bells, but I didn't really know how it played out. And so you have to go back and look at it historically. uh, Kim Jong-nam was assassinated in February of 2017. So that is just after Trump was inaugurated, his first full month in office. And the headlines and airwaves were being totally dominated by everything Trump at that time. Well, <laughs> as they have been for the last four years, it turns out. So I think what normally would have been um, you know, a top news story for months during the Obama era was the top story for a day and then just kind of dissipated into the ether. So um, I, like most people, remembered that there had been an assassination in an airport. I knew it was Kim Jong-un's brother. And I knew this sort of crazy detail that two women had been accused of the assassination, of of having done it in broad daylight on camera. Um, But I never knew how that unfolded. So about six months after the assassination, a journalist named Doug Bach-Clark had written an article in GQ magazine um, that was a deep dive into one of the women. Her name is Siti Aisha. She was an Indonesian woman um, who had played a part in this assassination and he had really, uh, with a lot of undercover sources, traced her roots up until that moment that she you know, ran up behind Kim Jong-nam and smeared VX chemicals uh, into his eyes, which killed him within an hour. Um, And the article was wildly popular. It was extremely, uh, a shocking article, where he was claiming, Doug's article was claiming that Siti Aisha was admitting that she had assassinated Kim Jong-nam, but was saying that she had thought she was on a reality show when she did it, and she didn't know she was about to kill someone. Uh, So Doug reached out to us and said, Uh, You know, uh, this article was wildly popular. All of these filmmakers are trying to option it from me. I'd love to jump on the phone with you. And we had just made a series for Netflix that year called The Keepers, um, which had also been very popular and was sort of in the true crime genre. And so Doug wanted to pick our brains um, because he thought we might be the appropriate filmmakers for it. So. We jumped on a call with him. We were totally sold once we read the article and talked to Doug. And a few weeks later, I was on a plane to Malaysia with Doug with my camera for an exploratory shoot. And being on the ground there and meeting all of these, you know, sources in dark alleys and meeting their lawyers who were trying to save these women's lives because they were being they were, you know, it was they were on death row. They were gonna face death by hanging if convicted. It just seemed to have all of the elements of sort of the biggest geopolitical true crime story you could ever imagine.
0: Yeah. Yes, it does. (laughs) I can attest to that after having watched Assassins. Well, you're in Malaysia. Where was it? Was it love at first sight? Did you know once you started this sort of the back alley kind of interviews? Did you know that this that you were all in? Would it take more convincing? What? Where did it go from there?
1: Yeah, no, I, I'm a I'm a skeptic by nature. So even when I heard this story, I mean the 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 story is literally unbelievable. You know, even having read Doug's article and talked to him, I did not believe that this was possible, that that two women could actually assassinate someone accidentally or unintentionally and think that they were part of a reality show. So it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was love at first sight, or I I I wouldn't say I was convinced at first sight, but I knew there was enough of a mystery there that I was personally enthralled and that I would be going back. So it was over the course of of months, if not years, because we followed this for a couple of years, that my my eyes started to be continually open to the fact that perhaps these women are telling the truth. Like the more, the more i i dove into evidence or you know a huge part of the film is the cctv footage from the airport that day where we kind of trace for the audience how it all went down between the women and the north korean operatives that day and the victim the longer we made it the more i started to to wonder whether they could actually be telling the truth and then you know, I knew if I was on that journey of of wondering myself that I could definitely take the audience on that journey as well if I did my job well.
0: Yeah. I want to be careful about spoiling any of this because it's truly, yes, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, truly a revelatory experience and things that you don't see coming necessarily. Um, but I think it's appropriate to kind of dive into the backgrounds of the two women, Siti Aisha and Duan Tai Wang, they have some very interesting backgrounds, and I think backgrounds that are not unusual or more common than we'd like to think for young women in poor countries who are trying to get ahead with not a huge amount of education behind them. Yes, is, is that Am I being fair in that assessment? Yeah,
1: you're being fair minus the fact that, uh, so so I'll, I'll tell you about both of them. You're being totally fair when it comes to Siti Aisha, who was a woman raised in a small Muslim village in Indonesia, left school in the sixth grade, ended up in the sweatshop industry in Jakarta, was a single mother, was always looking for a better life and ended up in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, which is you know, a pretty high class city uh, compared to Jakarta. And she went there, you know, with stars in her eyes, seeking a lot more opportunity. And instead, as we see kind of universally with human trafficking, those promises of going to Kuala Lumpur were totally empty promises. And she ended up in the underbelly of Kuala Lumpur as a sex worker, sending money back to her family in Indonesia. So that was her path before, before this assassination. Duan Huang is from Hanoi in Vietnam or a village outside of Hanoi but she was actually quite educated. She even had a college degree. So the women came from very different backgrounds but Duan the Vietnamese woman was not using her college degree. She had spent the past 5 or 6 years desperately seeking stardom. She had been on Vietnam Idol, she was acting on prank shows, you know, viral prank shows in in Vietnam. She was trying to model. Um So both women were sort of under these extraordinary circumstances where they were both seeking something. For Duan, that was fame, and for Siti, that was a better life and a better paycheck. And that's sort of what the film traces, like those paths that lead them up to the moment where they claim they were recruited by Japanese YouTube producers separately. One was recruited in Vietnam, one was recruited in Malaysia. Japanese YouTube producers and were hired to be on a prank show that they claimed that they were on for months being flown all around Asia and their final prank would be a political assassination unbeknownst to them.
0: There was something random about both of them being picked. At least it felt like that for Siti. Hmm. She was just... Wrong
1: place, wrong time type of... Like it could have happened to anyone. And that was one of my... That was one of my real uh, draws to this documentary because most of my documentary, almost all of them have been about women. Many of them have been about the exploitation of women. And to me, this story at the heart is about that. And with the specificity of the, it's sort of a cautionary tale about the internet and social media. So both of these women seemed like they could have been women in any part of the world, any young 20 something woman who is using social media in a way to seek many goals, whether that is fame or whether that's a job or whether that's attention, you know? I I agree that there's a randomness to why it was these two women. Like both, there had to be a perfect storm of details and events and where they were at the moment. And we know, by the way, that other women were tried to be recruited for this and for whatever reason didn't end up being the assassins. There were actually other women who were a part of this prank show. In a horrible kind of confluence of events for both of these women, they ended up in that situation being recruited, and then they were the ones that made it until the end to become the assassin.
0: You know, I'm gonna make an observation about North Korea and the world we live in 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 many ways. For a country that is essentially economically not very successful, They have, they have a strong military, but not much else. And they have nuclear weapons, which is their ace in the hole. But one thing they've been able to do is exploit the internet. Mm -hmm. What they have become very good at cyber espionage, but also it appears. And I'm again, this is where maybe it's a leap of beyond its actual uh, reality. And that is they have figured out ways in which to exploit people through the internet this plot would would not e- exist if it were not for a certain level of sophistication through the the youtube prank program and other, maybe i'm overstating the level of sophistication here but they were able to take advantage of the world we live in now sort of the cyber reality that we we live in right. and take adva- and make the, and and use this to their advantage
1: yeah, I mean, uh you know, in the biggest picture obviously I have felt that firsthand because of the Sony hack. So, you know, the you know, no one in Hollywood wants to make a film about the Kim regime anymore because of the Sony hack. That scared the hell out of everyone in Hollywood. Uh you know, and I think I think the big question around this assassination is less how they exploited or used the internet or social media. It's why. You know, the typical the typical MO before this for uh, for North Korean assassinations or executions was Kim Jong Nam and Kim Jong Un's uncle had been executed just before this in the years prior, and he was executed presumably by a firing squad, which is pretty standard in North Korea. Or assassinations were pulled off, you know, quietly in well, back alleys.
0: Well, uh, right after, right he, right before he was assassinated, Kim called him out in a giant meeting of the the whole leadership essentially called him out and had him dragged out of the out of the meeting well kim
1: jong-un undeniably loves a spectacle and that was part of that you know the the uncle his name's jung song tech was already was already in jail before of that meeting so that was done that was done to put on a show and so maybe that's the best way to say it kim jong-un loves a show yeah. You know, we know he grew up on Jean-Claude Van Damme movies, loving action films. You know, he loved the Chicago Bulls. We all know the history mm-hmm. of Dennis Rodman going there. We've all seen these, you know, ridiculous photos of Kim Jong-un on the top of Mount Pectu on a white horse that looked, like, that looked like some sort of ancient fable. So he loves a show. And so... The big question is why did he orchestrate this murder? Um, and, you know, we believe he did. We know the North Korean regime was involved in some way because it was all North Korean operatives that did it. So presumably this went to the top. Why did he orchestrate this in a way that was such a public spectacle, that literally was a reality show when it could have been done so easily, so quickly at any moment and so quietly? And The presumption with that was that a huge part of Kim Jong-un's consolidation of power over the last 10 years since, you know, he became uh, the leader of North Korea has been creating a chilling factor across not only all of North Korea and any of the people in his regime, like his uncle, but also to all of his enemies outside of North Korea. And this assassination happened in an international airport in a country where uh, none of these actors lived. Uh, including the victim, Kim Jong-nam happened to just be passing through an airport literally for a layover. And the idea that someone so important, such a huge public figure could be assassinated that brazenly in such a public place in such an international way all over camera, it worked like this. This had a chilling factor across the entire world where Kim Jong-un showed his power that he could get his enemies at any time, whenever he wanted, in the most public of ways.
0: Remind our listeners, we're speaking with the director of this remarkable documentary film called Assassins, and it is out December 11th in uh, theaters, uh, brick and mortar theaters, as well as virtual theaters. Be looking for this story that you've heard, maybe in some ways we referred to at the beginning, but uh, it takes so many twists and turns. It's called Assassins. One of the things that you do in this film, and you've been talking about it a little bit in, in terms of laying out kind of the uh, genealogy of the the uh, Kim family, its impact on on Korea. Uh, it's a it's quite a in in some ways this film is quite a a primer on international relationships, the relationship of North Korea in the region. China is certainly a big uh, sponsor of North Korea as well as kind of a protector. Would that be a? I think that's fair. But it is the X factor, which is Kim Jong-un that, as you said, I mean, he's, he's his desire to reach out and kill a half brother uh, thousands of miles from from North Korea has sent uh, the kind of signal that I think he's obviously looking to send. But I really appreciate just sort of the lesson in terms of Korea, North Korea and its place in the world in this film.
1: Yeah, it was, you know, that's sort of the big picture of the film we we always wanted to focus on the women and keep it a very character driven film and a very humanizing film about who they were but you can't understand the circumstances that these women ended up in without understanding the larger geopolitical web and how these women got stuck in that web and so we knew from the very beginning that Kim Jong Un you know was going to be a huge draw for audiences we saw that this year during coronavirus one of the very few stories that cut through in the spring besides the global pandemic while it was taking over the entire world was Kim Jong Un you know he was still grabbing headlines and the speculation around his health and death which ended up not being true and so the world is fascinated with kim jong-un and rightfully so and that soap whole sort of game of thrones soap opera that predated his rise to power i didn't know a lot about and so there definitely is a very sort of cinematic and dramatic evolution to the story on why one brother inherited the throne and the other didn't and likewise the whole geopolitical, diplomatic part of how this all went down was totally unbeknownst to me until I was inside of it because this this assassination involves so many governments. It involved the North Korean government, obviously involved the Malaysian government because that's where the murder happened and where the, the capital punishment trial for these women happened. It involved the Indonesian government, involved the Vietnamese government because that's where both of the women are from. It involved the Chinese government it involved the American government because Trump was meeting with, Kim Jong-un at this time and Kim Jong-nam, the brother, which we reveal in the film, was working with the CIA as a source. So it was this massive web, but always we were reminding ourselves like our movie is about these women who are at the very center of this web. And like we just talked about, they were randomly chosen, yet they found themselves, their lives depended on how all of these governments reacted to this and it felt like as a storyteller it felt like such a crazy opportunity to to tell such a macro story of the kim regime and the entire world governments and then such a small narrow story of two women that just ended up in a moment um in a moment in an airport and that was really fun to try to balance in the editing room
0: Well, in the last minute I have with you, there's something almost operatic, if you will. There's some grand opera feel to this story, but the access that you had to these women and their lives is, again, another amazing, remarkable part of the story. And as we get to know them, it just becomes patently clear that they had no idea what they were getting into and just happened just an amazing unbelievable way it just happened
1: yeah and i had had never made a film where you know my my main characters my main subjects i didn't have access to these women were in solitary confinement on death row in malaysia i would see them every day going into the trial you know in bulletproof vests surrounded by dozens of soldiers with ak-47s but i I never had access to them and I, and like like we talked about at the beginning I don't want to ruin the end of the film because I think most people don't know how this unfolded and me being me being one of them, you know, like I felt like I had no idea what happened at the end of the story so I don't want to ruin it, but the women, you know, are are the key to the story and I felt like if we could just let the audience get to know these women, go along on their journey that led this led them up to this moment. You know, I won't unequivocally say that they were trained assassins or they were tricked because I'm always a skeptic and I always have to be open to either. But I think we've presented everything we can in the film for, for audiences to make that conclusion. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, that would, ha- I think it would be one of the most accomplished double agent <laughs> st- stories of all time. If they are, if they are in fact. what.
1: what... They, yeah. They would have to be some of the most diabolical, <laughs> and genius uh, assassins (laughs) of all time if they were if they are in fact that
0: well, well, Ryan White, I want to thank you so much for the film. Again, it's called Assassins. It is in theaters on December 11th, brick and mortar, as well as virtual theaters. Be looking for this. The The website for the film is assassinsdoc.com. It's a great website. Uh, you'll find out all you need to know. And I really appreciate your time, Ryan White. Thank you so much for coming back here on Film School Radio.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure speaking with you.